Welcome to this podcast series produced by the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee of the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with Teaching Matters. We will hear from different academics at the university talking about what decolonizing the curriculum means for them and how they have put this into practice in their learning and teaching or research. They also share some findings and readings they have found useful. The hope is that the podcast will provide ideas, stimulate thinking and dialogue, as well as building a network of academics in the university who are interested and engaged in offering an anti-racist, a decolonized and inclusive curriculum. If you're interested in contributing a podcast to this series, please get in touch with Emily Senner or Johanna Halton, co-conveners of the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee. To get in touch with Emily, Email her at emily.senna at ed.ac.uk. And to contact Johanna, email johanna.halton at ed.ac.uk. Thank you for listening. Ayanda, thank you so much for being part of this podcast series on decolonizing the curriculum. Um, I wonder whether you might start with saying a little bit about who you are and your role uh, for the past year in the university. Thank you, Rowena. So my name, as said before, is Ayanda Ngobeni. I am a third year law student from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I am the current Black and Ethnic Minority Officer with the Students Association. And um, I feel that it's important for me to be here today to have this discussion, to talk um, as this was a part of my manifesto um, coming into my current role. Um, It's very important that we start to look at decolonizing the curriculum because it's also a very important part of repairing or amending the BME attainment gap. And I hope through this um, interview, we could begin to explore how really um, the BME attainment gap and decolonizing the curriculum could really, really um, work in hand. Thank you very much, Ayanda. I think it would be interesting to know why you included decolonizing the curriculum. I know you had five areas that you particularly wanted to push in your year as the officer um, and decolonizing the curriculum was one of them. Why did you choose that as one of the five? Okay, for this, I'd like to start with a little bit of an anecdote. Um, Before I became Black and Ethnic Minority Officer, I had an internship with USA. The title is quite long, so Microaggressions and Cultural Sensitivity Intern. Um, So that was my title, and a part of my role was to do research around the school um, and talk and have focus groups with students to find out our experience um, around just being in the university as being a person of colour. And in one of the students' groups, the student focus groups, I remember one person, actually quite a few people, but this story really stood out to me. There were a person doing their uh, their postgraduate degree. I believe they were doing their PhD at the time. And um, they were doing research and having discussions in class about some of the sources that they were um, wanting to include as part of their overall research. Um, and this um, particular student went to their um, professor and said, hey, this, there's this beautiful article. I think it's really, really great for my research. Um, and then the lecturer looked at the at the research 
um, source and was like, oh, this, you can't use this. And the source was from India, if I'm not mistaken. Um, basically, this lecturer just said, this is not a credible source because it's from India and it's not something you can include in your research. Not that it's not relevant to your PhD research, not that it's not a credible source. It was because of the fact that it was from India. That was the main problem the lecturer had with um, the research source. And for me, that was a huge red flag. Um, and it really began to signal to me how much we need to change that, how much you know, if you're in a learning environment and you're told that the country that you're from doesn't even produce research that is worthy enough to be in a learning space, to be part of your um, your degree, your PhD or your master's, it's it doesn't sit well with me. And that could really cause you to start to question yourself and really start to impact your level of self-belief and, and bravado, really. Um, that's when I realized it just became, I knew it was important before, but this became very, very, very um, important after I heard that story. And I remember that student being completely hurt, explaining to me, like, I did not even know how to react. And even if I reacted, this person is in charge of all my schoolwork. So I don't want to offend them, you know. Um, so it just really, there's so many parameters around it and we shouldn't have to feel that way when we enter a class to learn because we're all here for the same thing. It just, it really struck a chord with me and I included it in my manifestos as part of a big reason why we should be decolonizing the curriculum. I think that's a very full um, explanation as to why you've included it. I'm I think the listeners would find it really interesting to know a little bit more from you about what decolonizing the curriculum means for you in the context of, of the university, of your learning in the classroom and so on. Okay, so decolonizing the curriculum means that I can walk and people who look like me can walk or other people who have uh, who come from previously underrepresented groups can walk into a classroom, sit down, and just learn. I don't want to walk into class and have to kind of be exposed again to um, a past, a very unequal past, a very traumatic past, a very violent past in my present and I'm literally just trying to learn. I actually had a situation like that in one of my lectures, but I remember um, something was said in the lecture, in, in the lectures, and it was just kind of like a normal everyday thing. Um, and everyone was fine with it. And I remember I, I sat next to all my friends who also happened to be from Southern Africa. Um, and the topic that was being discussed was particularly towards Southern Africans. And we literally just it was a pause. I think we were 15 minutes into the lecture. We all looked at each other like, did that literally just happen? Did this lecture literally just say that? Are we sitting here and this just happened? And for the rest of the lecture, we couldn't concentrate. We couldn't take in what the learning outcome was for that lesson. And that means we missed out on some vital information. So what it means to me is being able to walk into a learning environment and just learn without having to 
fight the battles that you fight outside already with regards to your race and your ethnicity. It means just being there and learning and moving on. Um, like your fellow peers. It shouldn't be a thing where I need to walk into the class and have to, again, now analyze and kind of pack my emotions and pack my um, my reaction to what, you know, to everything that's being displayed on the screen. But also at the time we were in first year, so it also felt very odd to stand up and go to the lecture and say, hey, this was kind of inappropriate because you're scared you're in your first year and it's a national student there's just so much around it and for me decolonizing the curriculum would just mean that I'm able to just walk into a class and learn are you able to share what was said that created such discomfort amongst your colleagues and yourself so we were in um, our lecture critical legal thinking. Um, it was already a difficult subject. That subject showed everyone how, just as a disclaimer. So we're in this um, lecture and one of the examples that were given was a case. And this case was about, it was at the level of the Court of Europe, basically with the EU and so on. Um, and it was about an immigration problem. And the immigration issue that was at hand was this woman who's originally Zimbabwean and she was, this was in 2004, she was protesting being um, deported um, back to Zimbabwe because she had been diagnosed with HIV AIDS and she, she said that she wouldn't be able to receive the treatment that she's receiving here in Zimbabwe. So now keeping in mind that there's never been an example ever till today in my third year of anything related to the African continent, unless it's about immigration. So we were sitting there and we already know the stereotypes that are attached to us. We already know, you know, the, the looks that we get when we walk into the lecture, you know, it's, it's kind of like, oh, you don't really belong here. Everyone's asking you where you're from, like you're not originally from here, like you already feel like us sore thumb sticking out and then that what the one time the one time you actually speak about us it's riddled with stereotypes like we're begging to be here like in terms of immigration and it just it really bothered us I remember just us just like looking around like are you serious right now like you know um, and a second example is when we were talking about um, this was in commercial law um, we're talking about insurance and this lecture, I thought they could just like, you know, kind of like slip through it. But I knew what he was actually talking about. Like, you don't, you don't get past me. Um, we're talking about the, we're talking about how insurance basically came to life, like why there's insurance today. And it has its roots in the slave trade because some, like you would, probably get like a thousand slaves when you leave the continent uh, but then when you get here it's like you have 500 or you know some people die on the way here because of the conditions and so on so insurance was literally to make sure that hey these many slaves died so you know we could kind of compensate you for that and he kept on saying oh the ships went from this place to that place the ships the ships and he was dancing around the issue and I remember the whole lecture I'm like 
are you are you being serious right now and everyone was just so normal about it everyone was just fine about it and I could not for the life of me sit down and concentrate for that lesson because why you're not why are you not saying it like it is is it because it's too uncomfortable for you like imagine how that is for me knowing that you know it's from my continent but anyway there's just so like these instances that are kind of subtle that you can't really always just like come out and say it so that was that was the situation um needless to say I think those are the subjects I didn't do too well in (laughs) yeah so I didn't do as well as the other subjects so it just really I think that links well to my plea of it um kind of connecting to the BME attainment gap so um, that neatly brings me, in fact, actually to um, what you said earlier about the link between the importance of decolonizing the curriculum and that link to the attainment gap. So here, I guess, it sounds as though you're talking here about a sense of self-esteem, belonging. These are issues. Perhaps you'd like to expand on that link between decolonizing the curriculum and the attainment issue. Yes. So it's it's so important because I realize that when you're in a place, I'm just talking from personal experience and experiences that I've heard from other students as well and my friends. When you're in a place where you feel like you don't belong, where, you know, it's kind of you're reminded of it in very subtle ways sometimes, sometimes very overt ways, you don't thrive in that kind of an environment. You don't get the opportunity to really put your 100% because you don't think part of you um, doesn't really feel that your 100% is even enough because of who you are or where you come from. And that's the, the bottom line of it, really, when it comes to decolonizing the curriculum. You begin to, like, as... um. I mentioned before, if it's a lecture and or a tutor that you go to and they just say an off comment about where you're from or just things like that, it demotivates you. It really does demotivate you. You stop asking for help. You kind of just reclude into this little cocoon um, and you just kind of go through the motions, but you're not really thriving. You're not because you're not really believing in yourself. You're not going out and getting the things that you actually want because you are not thriving. And the reason you're not thriving is because your self-confidence and who you are is little by little being broken down. And I remember speaking to my friend um, about this particular instance. Um, My friend, Brindy is currently doing their their PhD. Um, We spoke about how, and sometimes you start to notice the little things, even in your tutorials. Um, You'll be in your tutorial and you'll be talking and you'll be answering questions. And you begin to see, as soon as you open your mouth and you speak, people stop typing on their laptops because they don't feel like your contribution to the class is worthy. Even if the lecturer says, hey, that was really correct, that was really thought out, that was a great argument, people don't automatically feel that you are capable of that. It's only after that the lecturer has confirmed that, hey, this is a great answer, then people will start to take those notes down. It's even more difficult because I'm I'm a very observant person, just like by nature. So I do notice the little things. And, you know when you're living in an environment like that where there's 
those subtle cues that, hey, your contribution is not that important or it really gets to you, whether you like it or not, it really gets to you, especially because you are an international student. Some of us don't have family here where we could go back and cry to like, hey, oh my gosh, it's happened. And to kind of just get that, feed yourself from that well of people who really love you and, and support you and appreciate you, it becomes really difficult. And that's how it links to the BME attainment gap. It's, it is the slow breaking down and confidence that causes you not to go full on and reach your potential. And decolonizing the curriculum for me means that more than looking at the curriculum itself and changing it, it's about how we treat people in the class. It's about how your lecturers um, approach you, your tutors approach you and how um, they take in who you are without judging you, you know, for how you look on the outside or, you know, them also taking in sources from your country seriously. It's it's so much more than looking at the curriculum itself and changing it. It's about changing the system itself in which we are receiving the education. And the bottom line of that does stem down to microaggressions and racism. So that is the root cause of it all. Um, when we can begin to start to change those things and be deliberate about it, that's when we could start to see a real change in how students... Um, really benefits from a, a curriculum that has that is decolonized. Thank you very much, Ayanda, for such an honest and actually uh, examples that you gave. I think were very will mean quite a bit to people who are listening. I think what it does for the person who's listening, who's maybe not confident in taking forward, decolonizing the curriculum, what it has done certainly for me is to enthuse me to go ahead and do it, regardless of how I'm maybe feeling trepidation. But for those who are engaging with it, it actually confirms to them why it's important. And the wider impact is something that I think not many people have considered in terms of for the students uh, and certainly linking it to the attainment gap has been um, really important. But also your examples exemplify how racial microaggressions work, but it also exemplifies the power of curriculum content and how we can change the ethos of the learning environment um, through decolonizing the curriculum. Can I just ask you um, whether there have been any books or writers or articles that you have found useful that you'd like to share? Okay, so outside of my learning material, I have limited the amount of um, things that I do read, unless it's summer break because my my brain cannot take it. So I would say, though, it is a video someone... I really look up to, um, kind of recommended to me, and it's a poem that I've always had along for a long time. Yes, Sharina, I'm speaking about you. The Still I Rise poem, I think it just really encapsulates basically the fight within that you have and how that could kind of come out on the outside and how that could be shown on the outside. It's just, it's really... I really love it because every time I listen to it, I feel pride within myself. I feel proud of who I am and I'm ready to go out there and just kind of say, okay, this is my, what you may think of me, but that's your problem. Um, and that's not my responsibility. I'm here 
for a certain purpose and I'm going to fulfill that because still I rise. That's the name of the poem by Maya Angelou. So I think that outside like of like really long reading materials and so on, I think that poem really does it for me in terms and I definitely recommend it for others. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ayanda, for your time. And um, I think you should be well pleased with your year as Liberation Officer for Black Minority Ethnic Students because what you've done is, I think, enthused us and the university to take on decolonizing the curriculum seriously. And I hope that your cohorts to follow you will have the impact of seeing that change. So all the very best for your next stage of your career and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs>